Welcome to the latest episode of Perspective Exchange. Continuing our discussion on India's energy scenario, CSTEP's Executive Director Dr. Jay Asundi and Head of the Energy and Power Sector Mr. Abhishek Nath are in conversation with Mr. Vipul Tholi. Mr. Tholi is the CEO of Semcorp Industries South Asia and the chair of Vicky's Power Committee. India is in the process of transforming its power sector into a greener and cleaner system. Let's tune in to the conversation with Mr. Tholi to understand what this means, what the challenges are and what the future holds for us. Over to you Jay and Abhishek. Uh, welcome everyone. Uh, today we have uh, the great pleasure of having Mr. Vipul Tholi. He's the managing director of Semcorp Energy India Limited, the Indian subsidiary of Semcorp Group. He also heads Semcorp's South Asia business and oversees Semcorp's investments and key stakeholder relationships in India and Bangladesh as CEO of South Asia. What is more interesting is Mr. Tuli also chairs the power committee of uh, FICI. And prior to joining Semcorp, Vipul was the senior partner with McKinsey and Company and helped build and lead the Asian energy practice. He's an alumnus of IIM Calcutta and IIT Delhi. Uh, welcome, Vipul. Thanks very much, uh, Jay, and uh, thanks to the CSC step team for having me. Pleasure. Uh, thank you, Vipul. So the first question uh, that I have for you is, as CEO of South Asia Corp Industries and also the chair of the Power Sector Committee, could you provide a bit of your perspective on the issues facing the industry and what are your concerns when it comes towards this push towards renewable energy? Sure. Uh, before I get into it, maybe a, a quick word of uh, where I'm coming from and therefore what perspective I'm, I'm approaching this from. So uh, on the FIKI uh, Power Committee, we have a very, very wide range of people all the way from uh, fuel producers to uh, generators to transmission companies, equipment companies and so on. And then from a, a CEMCOP uh, perspective, if I look at you know, CEMCOP is a, is a Singapore-based uh, uh, global utility with about uh, 12 gigawatts plus of operating capacity, and we are right in the middle of a very massive transition from ground to green. Uh, in India, we are, uh, uh, we've been here for about 10 years, and uh, we are today one of the largest uh, foreign investors in the power sector in India. We have uh, about 4.8 gigawatts of capacity, uh, both conventional and renewable, and also uh, have gone through the full gamut of experiences around acquiring in India, building plants from scratch, commissioning them, getting them operated, uh, and, and dealing with a very large number of uh, uh, both state and central government agencies. So uh, I, I think it's fair to say we have a fairly holistic perspective on the sector. And as a strategic, we are not, we are not a financial investor uh, for a fixed period of time. Our interests are actually quite aligned with the, with the country in the sense that we, we like to be in a project as you know, the last man standing in the project. And so um, uh, there's very much a, a perspective of, you know, bid it well, build it well, and operate it well. So that's where we're coming from. So coming to your question, um, I think the, the power industry is a very, very exciting industry at the moment because it's an industry in transition, as everyone knows. Uh, there's some things that are very uh, uh, encouraging about the industry, the demand side, first of all. Uh, if you look at, uh, uh, it's quite timely today, I believe, uh, on uh, uh, the 30th of June, we've actually hit an all-time high demand ever in India, which is 191 gigawatts. And that is literally, uh, you know, just weeks after lockdown. So you can see how quickly, you know, demand responses come back. And as you see that progressing, at even, you know, without 
additional electrification, we are talking about at least 4 to 6% of annual demand growth. To that, you add conversion of new uh, um, forms of energy, taking, let's say, 17% of uh, the, the basket of energy that comes from electricity today, going to, say, 25 30%. That's a massive, massive demand uh, boom. And so uh, that itself makes, makes uh, uh, things quite exciting and, and encouraging. Uh, we've had, uh, I would say, very significant progress in the energy transition uh, from barely any renewable capacity 10 years ago to today we are 8-9% of energy, not capacity, energy uh, supplied from renewables, which is a big, big shift in the country the size of India. Uh, a lot of uh, very strong political commitment, which is great. And I think what's also good is we've managed to establish some very good transparent processes. So today, everything goes on competitive bidding, which encourages investors a lot. Um, and there's also, I would say, a fairly good institutional support for capacity addition, whether it's through you know, the ministries or SECI or PGCIL or, um, or the other institutions. So I think all this is good. Now, what, what concerns us about this? Uh, I, I think there are, of course, some pretty serious concerns too. I think First and foremost, I would just say that um, without sounding too dramatic, the sector economics today are unsustainable. We've got a situation where uh, we've basically got the discom sector, which is more or less unviable. Now, don't get me wrong, the discoms have made, most of them have made great progress in the last five, 10 years and have actually operationally improved in most cases pretty significantly. But if you come back to their actual viability, which is not just a question of physical losses, but it really comes down to tariff. If we've got a situation where tariff increases are not reflective of the costs that they're facing, then you've essentially got India's entire energy security. That is um, sort of uh, held to ransom by uh, these organizations, which are, by the way, very competent people, very uh, very dedicated people. In fact, if you see what they've done through COVID, it's really, really inspiring. But they're fundamentally un unviable. So what ends up happening is they're not able to look beyond operational cash flows. And uh, effectively, for anything like investing in net networks or upgrading or any shock that happens to demand or supply, they basically uh, cripple, it cripples liquidity and then you know they're running the little post. Unfortunately, some of that malaise has infected the generators as well. So if you look at all the listed power companies, which are, I would say, the bulk of it is in the generation sector. Last year's, the last financial year's average ROE was minus 3.1%. And this is after I've taken out one or two outliers who were very, very negative. So you've really got minus 3.1%. You put this whole picture together with the demand growth and it may not be reasonable to assume that this sort of a, a viability challenge on, on discounts and generators is going to be able to gear up to meet the kind of capacity that our country needs. So we've got a big, big uh, gap. Uh, second thing is, as we look, you know, today we are 8, 9% of renewables. As we look to going beyond 10%, and of course we want to go to 20, we want to go to 25, we want to go beyond, uh, it will be more challenging than the first 10%. And country after country has seen this. Uh, so for instance, if you look at, uh, you know, we, we've managed it so far because of two or three things that we've done. One, we've actually provided free interstate transmission, 
which just recently got extended to 2025. That will have to come to an end at some point once that starts to fill up. Uh, we've uh, uh, effectively allowed conventional generators to pick up the costs or uh, discounts to absorb the cost because they're not really getting the pass-through to consumers that's happening. So we've actually got a situation where uh, up till 9-10%, it's kind of worked. The numbers have worked. And industry has also given a fabulous response to institutions about support. So as we go to the next 10% or the next 15% percentage points of penetration, uh, it's I don't think we will be able to socialize these costs anymore. So we'll either have to do one of two things. We'll either have to pass these through to the consumers or we'll have to find other ways of financing them, which means taxation money or government money from somewhere else has to come in and close that gap. Uh, we are not really seeing anything other than the first few attempts at doing that. Now, I think we are actually at a very, very interesting time right now in June 2021, because this is where some of the new measures that the government has put in place in the last four or five months are actually hitting the street now. Things like local manufacturing, things like uh, new duties for uh, to support that manufacturing, things like the new tariff policies there, et cetera, et cetera, which is uh, still waiting to be enacted. So we are in that cusp. Uh, but it's useful to keep in mind that if you just look at uh, what the true cost of renewables is. And somewhere as a country, I think we have to recognize that and build our policies to, 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 to um, make that successful. Just take Germany as an example, which is often held up as an example of great successful penetration of renewables. Uh, retail tariffs in Germany are the equivalent of about 25 rupees per unit. We are below five. Of that 25 in Germany, my numbers may be slightly off, but order of magnitude, about 15 of that 25, is explicitly attributed towards surcharges and additional charges because of that energy transition. So we're talking about some fairly significant numbers. I think we have to face that as a, as a policy uh, and as an industry and plan towards it. Build a lot more pull on the part of consumers to say, look, we want this green transition and let's make it Besides that, I think a few other things uh, worry us. Uh, Top three, I would say, is one would be financing. We need uh, more depth in local markets, local markets for bonds especially, because most, most companies in the past sector very quickly become in the large borrower categories, which means you have to go to bonds, and the bond markets don't have the liquidity. Access to globally has been improved quite a lot by the government in the last five years, but there are still many constraints to really accessing global, uh, global uh, capital. So one is financing, the other would be, I think, manufacturing supply chains. We can talk more about that, but it's very nascent. And the third, I would say, is, of course, our, our classic execution issues in India, of which the two I would like to point out are grids and land. Grids are currently, grid, grid implementation is not aligned with bid implementation. And land, of course, uh, continues to be quite a challenge, which, which causes uncertainty. Thanks for the answer. You talked about two things which, which sort of uh, caught my attention uh, as far as the next question is, the two things were build it well, operate it well on one side. And the second thing that you talked about is the whole sector economy. Now, keeping uh, these two things in mind, given uh, that the government has now committed to 450 gigawatt of renewable energy by 2030, uh, and given that China still accounts for 71% of the total solar module manufacturing capacity globally, how do you think uh, the industry is gearing up uh, for this opportunity? 
I think that's you've put your uh, finger on probably the, the uh, uh, one of the most crucial areas of the of the current delivery system. I think before I answer that, let me go back to wind because we're talking about solar. But if you look at wind, we have a very good example right there with us of what to do well and what not to do. Uh, if you look at what the wind, and I'm not talking about the IPPs like us at this point, I'm talking about our suppliers who are the OEMs, let's call them OEMs or manufacturers. Uh, if you look at what the wind industry in India created and, and is currently also happening, it is nothing short of remarkable. Okay, In a space of probably 10 to 15 years that I've been seeing it, we were able to create massive capacities, very high order of skills, all the way from blades to towers to generators to nacelles to uh, the the uh, composites to the uh, uh, the software systems to run these etc cetera, etc cetera. and the whole ecosystem was created that ecosystem by the way exists today and so much so that india has become a global hub for manufacturing of wind equipment and export to all over the world i would say in fact uh, probably the only thing that uh, comes close, so I don't know which is better, which is worse, but uh, similarly in that league is the auto sector. And you you know, everyone knows the auto sector much better, so I use that as an example. But still, wind is not a great example. Why? Because today, you know, wind manufacturers are struggling, to put it uh, mildly. Okay. We used to have nine or ten major OEMs operating out of India. Today, we have barely three or four. Barely three or four, which means we've taken an industry which essentially was as good as our auto industry. And imagine if half the auto companies in India disappeared or went sick. It's a, it is a event of that magnitude. Um, now, what's I think uh, more unfortunate is that they are still able to export, which means the capabilities are there. The world wants our goods, but somehow I think the combination of uh, assurance of volumes in the pipeline of bids and the acceptability of tariffs that actually allow the manufacturers to be viable. I think these two things somewhere uh, we may have lost our way. And I think these need to be real. As we, there are many people that are now investing in solar, of course, on the module side, I think, if I recall correctly, they were about 15 gigawatts of proposals on the table and equipment order and so on. There was a very, two, three days back, there was a massive announcement by one of the leading corporates in India about an even larger order order of magnitude, larger investments and so on. All that is very, very good and very positive for the industry. But I think what we, what we need to make sure is that since, uh, of course, there is some, uh, uh, since a large part of the uh, uh, demand comes from government tenders. That pipeline needs to be maintained to maintain the health of the industry, to nurture it. Of course, there is a private PPA market as well, and it seems like there are some signs that that may uh, be opened up and more access through the grids may be allowed and so on. That should also be done at the same time, just so that one way or the other, there's enough volume to, to fuel that. You know, if you want to do 450 gigawatts in, let's say, eight, nine years, that means you've essentially got you knock off two years for implementation, you've basically got seven years, seven years uh, and, you know, uh, about 300 gigawatts to be added. That's a pretty tall order. So, so one was this volume. I think the second is, is tariffs. My sense is that the shocks of wind uh, and now the global pricing shocks in solar are anyway, they're going to lift 
the, the tariffs in any case. I mean, I, it's not with a lot of bids going on these days, it's not fair for me to comment too much on tariffs, but I think everyone agrees tariffs can and will uh, have to and will go. Uh, the third thing, of course, is, is uh, the ecosystem development. I think the government's done very well to, to come up with this new PLI scheme. Um, but we need to think about this in terms of a transition period that allows the ecosystem to be developed. Because here we are talking about not just simply taking foreign high-tech materials and converting them on foreign machines to modules. That is the simplest part. The ecosystem will be built when we can do ourselves, but that too is just a matter of capital and a little bit of uh, uh, skill. I don't mean to put down any, any industry segment, but, but that's the fact. Then when you go to wafers, it starts to be really high tech. And then of course, polysilicon has its own, um, its own as you uh, challenges go back. So that whole ecosystem has to be created and they have to be allowed to make enough money that they can invest in R&D. The mindset of what we've done to our discounts cannot be allowed to happen to these because these are high-tech manufacturing. If we want to compete, I mean, China has truly established a, a actually remarkable uh, industry worth of admiration. The kind of innovations that they're doing today, they have their models have been announced last month for 2022 end and 2023. And if you look at the tech innovation that's going, that's very, very solid. Now, to be able to enable that innovation, the first thing is financial um, stability, financial resilience in the companies that actually want to do it. Right? You take a place like Bangalore, you take Mysore, you take uh, Gurgaon, you take Pune, any of these places can be just massive innovation hubs that can come around this whole this way. Um, so yeah, I think volume consistency, uh, better view on tariffs and this end-to-end -end ecosystem uh, uh, development, uh, uh, I would say, stability of policy that allows the uh, ecosystems to develop. Thank you, Mr. Tully. I, uh, I, I, I think you answered that really comprehensively, uh, taking it the various aspects of the whole industry. Uh, one of the important things that you pointed out was uh, your the example that you gave of the wind uh, uh, manufacturing capacity that uh, we built up and now uh, which is on the decline and you also gave examples of innovation in china uh, one thing uh, which i can't miss is uh, the finance aspect that you talked about and uh, uh, how at various levels we have to make the industry more attractive i mean it, it sh should get attractive because then innovation would not happen perhaps However, uh, taking it uh, a little uh, uh, on a different line, uh, government policies and the regulatory challenges also uh, impact industry a lot. I mean, they, they can decide the growth of industry to, to a, a very, very important extent. So in your perspective, what are the policy and the regulatory challenges that we face today and the structural challenges that have been created due to COVID uh, that need to be resolved for accelerating development of RE in India? Look, this is obviously a very policy-heavy um, sector, or rather regulatory-heavy sector, highly regulated sector. So one can go on and on about this. And, and, and I must say, you know, there are many policies uh, that, I mean, the government is very dynamic in this, in this sector and constantly thinking of, okay, what can be done to, 
to move the sector forward and so on. So there's a lot of good stuff that's being done. Since you've asked about challenges, I would actually point out four. Uh, the first is that there are a, a set of known, broadly accepted amendments required to the Electricity Act. Those are now being pending for, I think, more than two years, this particular version. And if I go back to the first conversations that around amending it, probably 10 years now. So I think it's about time. <laughs> There's some very good proposals in there. Those proposals have been modified and even whittled down. But at least now what we've got is a, is a very good set of proposals. We need to find it in ourselves to get them done. The second, I would say, is the tariff policy. So tariff policy, which is which is again one of the one of the few aspects of this concurrent list subject that is actually uh, binding on the on the uh, state regulators and therefore on the discounts, also has a very far-reaching and progressive set of um, proposals and measures in it. Again, a lot of discussion has happened, and uh, I would say that's the second one. So the, the tariff, which is called the new tariff policy. Um, I hope it is enacted before while it's still new uh, and, and it should come through. I think the third I would say is what I briefly mentioned earlier, which is the grid to bid alignment. Today, you've got a situation where the bids proceed on a certain set of timelines and a certain set of contractual documents that govern those bids. Today, those timelines and those contractual documents don't really talk to the grid. Uh, timelines and the grid contracts. So if there is a mismatch, uh, MNRE does what it can to say, okay, suppose the grid is not ready, I'll give you an extension and I won't penalize you, which is fine from MNRE's point of view, but it doesn't really help the developer because once you put, let's say, two or 3,000 crores of steel into the ground, you're then your clock is ticking pretty fast. It's like having a jumbo jet on the runway burning fuel and you're not getting, you know, takeoff permission. That's a very, very, that's a recipe for uh, companies to, to, to fail. So those documents need to be, uh, need to talk to the grid documents and really be able to align where, whatever are the constraints of the grid, of course, the grid is also doing its best, but that accountability and commitment on timelines needs to also be there by whatever means. The fourth, I would say, is actually not a particular policy, but more of a macro, not a particular regulation, but more of a macro policy is, I would say, stability and alignment across ministries. The renewable sector and the transition that we are thinking about across power is not possible to be done by one ministry. Okay, at a minimum, you need MNRE, of course. You need the power ministry, of course. Both of them are working quite well together. You also need finance. You need all the taxation. You need all the banking. All of those need to be moving together. You need the state governments to be fully aligned, but at least at the central level, the taxation, financing and liquidity and banking related uh, activities really need to be not just aligned but and working together, but actually stable and not, when there are changes, they need to be uh, really working together rather than uh, perhaps doing uh, sort of their best in the individual areas. In terms of structural, I would just point one, we've talked about it enough, which is really the discounts. I think if we are able to uh, give our discounts who are highly competent organizations, provided they are given the tariff headroom to do what they need to do, 
we can then create the discounts of the future. Whether we do that through the existing state organizations or through private privatization, or we do it through some sort of quasi uh, uh, methods in between, all of those are that, that's a whole longer discussion. But either way, we need discounts of the future to be able to have an energy sector of the future. Uh, Mr. Tuli, thank you for that very comprehensive and overarching view. Uh, but I think uh, th this conversation would be incomplete if I if I didn't ask you something that's you know over the horizon. I mean, these are things that we have all been part of in the energy sector. We know uh, quite a bit of this. Some of these things are uh, we are aware of, and 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 as you said rightly, that the government is constantly thinking about it. But uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about this clean energy transition. And so what is in, you know, again, putting on your Fiki hat, what is the current thinking on this impetus towards setting up of the hydrogen economy in India for clean transition? And what are the industry insights that you can provide on this particular issue? Yeah, I think it's still early days. Uh, I, I must say uh, there's a lot of excitement about it and it's certainly got everyone's attention. So there's many people looking at it, creating, trying to understand plans, what can be done, etc. cetera. Uh, the, the, the fact is that if you look at hydrogen and uh, electricity, these two value chains are both competing and interlinked. They're competing in the sense that by the time you get to some of the end uses like vehicles or mobility, you could very well be competing. You know, do I use uh, batteries or other charging or do I use, you know, fuel cells or hydrogen in some other form, whatever it is. Yet at the same time, they're interlinked through at the production end whether it's uh, you know green hydrogen or it's substitution of blue hydrogen or whatever it is, so I, I think it's it's good that the uh, that the government seems to be approaching this in a in a sort of integrated interministerial sort of fashion with petroleum and power together. So I think that's fabulous. Uh, I would just say maybe two things uh, sort of to to keep in mind. Uh, maybe actually it's just one thing, which is uh, about viability. Uh, I think it's it's uh, the the viability of green hydrogen, the viability of hydrogen is uh, to be established, and of course it will only be established once you get into it. You can't sit on a desk and establish viability. So uh, the only suggestion I would have is that that the uh, it's fabulous that we are setting targets and we are taking uh, very concrete measures to try and you know set, uh, for instance, percentage of. Uh, consumption of certain industries by hydrogen or percentage of even you know hydrogen purchase obligations are being uh, uh, examined and so on. Uh, it's great that we're setting that. Let's make sure that we set it with the vibe, set these in a uh, calibrated fashion, in a calibrated and increasing fashion so that the viability of the individual uh, hydrogen applications is kept in mind. At the same time, the viability of what they're competing with and what they're um, going to be interlinked with is also kept in mind. Right? And that extends all the way from the manufacturers to the developers to the ultimate consumers, whether it's the discounts or the fertilizer companies or the or the uh, automobile consumers. So I think we it's it's a it's a good development. I think the next two, three years we'll see a lot. But um, uh, having a lot going on in the sector is is uh, something we're now getting used to. Yes, I, I think that's uh, that's that's wonderful, and I think I'll definitely uh, keep in mind uh, this particular aspect on viability because that is something that I think we need to study it fairly carefully at this point in time, and 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 really look at it from a 
a life cycle perspective across all the chains. I think that's 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 really great. Uh, uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I hope our listeners uh, really benefit from this conversation, get a better sense of your perspective, and 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 take it forward. Uh, thank you again very much. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Given that states have a vital role in developing the power sector, synergizing the operations of the central and state governments could go a long way in fast-tracking India's journey towards clean energy. We hope you found this podcast insightful. Subscribe to Perspective Exchange to stay updated on policies and technologies that drive India towards a cleaner and sustainable future. Do write to us at cpe at the rate cstep.in to share your feedback and follow us on Twitter at the rate cstep underscore India for more updates. Till next time, thank you.